Welcome. This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Pornography and the Brain, Understanding the Science of Addiction and Recovery, delivered by Donald Hilton Jr., MD, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2014. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. It's wonderful to be with you today and to have this opportunity um, to spend a few moments and consider uh, some of these perspectives which we've talked about. And I'd like to start off, this is a heavy subject as have been many of the subjects we've discussed today, in talking about pornography, the brain. But I think it's critical that we do so because if we don't get the disease right in medicine, for instance, then we can't begin to treat the patient. If a person comes in and they have uh, maybe a, a slight virus and a, a little cold or a fever, and we say, look, take two aspirin and go home and take a, a red, and yet they really have Ebola, doing very well with treating that patient. And pornography addiction, sexual addiction, is in some ways very similar. If we undertreat this problem, then we will not be effective, and that means not only in treating and helping our loved ones and ourselves. Now, this slide, I'd like to start off talking about perspective. Sometimes we think we understand things. We think we've got it, don't we? That's our human nature. I've got this one. I understand it. And let's say we're a, a family member, a spouse, or someone who struggles with sexual addiction and pornography addiction. Then there's a tendency to say, I can do this on my own. Or if we're, say, an ecclesiastical leader, you know, I've got this. We can work with this person spiritually, and they can do it. And, and there's this perspective thing that we can have where we think we understand and know what's happening. Now, just for perspective, in terms of thinking we know what's happening, um, there is this, on this slide, this is, of course, a sunset. And it's a, a night sky. You can hardly see it, but there's a little dot halfway up right there. Can anyone see that little dot? The lights? There you go. Now can you see the dot? All right, so now, of course, we have Venus is right, the, or the first star that rises, but then you have several other planets. These are planets, of course, is the first things you see. So my question is, is this Venus, is this Mars, or what it could it be, Jupiter, Saturn? Uh, we have any astronomers here? Who think, does anyone have a guess as to which planet this is? Anyone? Okay, so we think we know it's one of those planets, right? No, this is the Earth taken from Mars in January of this year from the rover, from a Martian sunset. So this is us. So we thought we got this one, right? We thought, I, 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 you know, I got this. I know based on my perspective of the world, I can see this and I can read it. And yet we were completely, we were on a different world. And so it's really important in sexual addiction to have that same perspective. Now, this picture, it's my, one of my favorite pictures of my parents. Um, this is when they were dating. And uh, actually, um, we have someone here who my dad served as a mission president for our church years ago, and we have one of his former missionaries here. And uh, he just, and so that's, thanks for sharing that with me. Um, this, they were dating here, and you can see this magic, can't you? We've been talking about connection. We've been talking about this, this, what makes us human. 
And you can just see it in this magnetism, this beauty, what, the, the, the majesty of what it means to be a human being, can't you? And, and, and this initial early love developed into what was a 50-year marriage. And dad, of course, the mom, as he worked through medical school, she worked and supported him through. As then he became ill with Parkinson's until he passed, uh, she uh, took care of him. It was a beautiful partnership to watch this 50-year marriage. But that's what it's about. That's that human connection. It's not the other. It's not the lie. In fact, Cicero said this over 2,000 years ago, the uh, Roman lawyer. He said, yet more, if emotion be eliminated, what difference is there? I say not between a man and a brute, but between a man and a rock or any other inanimate object. That's what makes us human, isn't it? It's emotion. It's the love. It's the connection. Pornography is devoid of emotion, of connection. Yet, the modern sexologists of today would tell us differently. And so I'm going to spend over half the time, about half the time, a little over, talking about the problem. And not just the problem of addiction. And I'm going to talk about some of the biological considerations but those who are charged by society with being the experts, the sexologists, the ones to whom the press go and say, what is this? Many of whom say, it's normal, it's healthy, it's fine. Where did this come from? This is part of the problem. It's understanding how did we get here. And so I'm going to talk a little about that. For instance, David Lay wrote a book called The Myth of Sexual Addiction, and he said, that, sec that pornography provides a legal outlet for illegal sexual behaviors or desires, and its consumption or availability has been associated with a decrease in sex offenses, especially child molestation. We're going to talk about that a little later. That's false. That's not true. It's based on faulty government data, and that's been shown in a recent paper by Young in the Iowa Law Review. But this is what the sexologists will say based on correlative studies over the last three decades. And, and so he goes on, we need better methods to help people who struggle with high frequency use of, note, visual sexual stimuli without pathologizing them or the use thereof. They don't call it pornography. They want to get away from the word. It's called VSS, visual sexual stimuli. It's healthy. In the recent paper, uh, the Emperor's New Clothes, Lay and Prowse and others, said that actually it's good for teenagers because it teaches them different varieties of sexual behaviors, different forms of intercourse and non-intercourse sexuality that's healthy for teenagers to explore themselves early. This is what the modern sexologists of today are saying. For instance, this paper was published in Socioaffective Neuroscience by the SPAN Lab at UCLA. And they basically said, there's no such thing as addiction. Some people are just born with high sexual desire. If you happen to be a man that likes to sleep with uh, prostitutes and watch porn all day, then that's just the way you're born, and you shouldn't try to change. And your family just needs to get over it. It sounds crazy, but it's true. And that's really what they say. I actually wrote a peer-reviewed rebuttal to this in that journal and, um, and challenged that, that premise. In this emperor's new clothes, they called the treatment industry, those, those therapists, and we have many therapists here today that provide just life-saving 
work for those struggling with addiction. What they say about you is that you are just exploiting what is not even real. That sexual addiction doesn't exist. That it's just an industry that creates a problem. The problem is that we don't just accept it and embrace any kind of sexuality anytime, anywhere, with anyone. And so, but interestingly in this article, which was of course widely publicized by the popular press, they didn't talk about the large lucrative pornography industry. Nowhere in the article did they talk about Vivid Films, for instance, making $100 million last year. They didn't talk about Hugh Hefner or Steve Hirsch's total worth. Didn't cross their pen once when they were talking about it. They have no problem with the immense profits of the porn industry, these sexologists. So it really goes back to what is good and what is bad, what is healthy, what is not healthy. Remember when the emperor in Star Wars was trying to turn young Anakin, and he succeeded, didn't he, into, Luke's, into uh, Darth Vader? And Anakin said, he said, Anakin said to him, and he, of course he was really the emperor, the, the, um, uh, the emperor, but he was the chancellor at that time. You remember the Star Wars movie. And he said, um, Anakin said, well, well, Emperor, he said, the Jedi use the force for good. The Sith Lords don't do that. And he said, good is a point of view, Anakin. That's really what's happened now. So I'm going to briefly go through some slides. And um, as Karen said, I'm not going to read everything. I may read a sentence or two from them. But I'd, I'll, that way you can go back and spend time with it so I can get through all of the material I'd like to cover today. How did we get here? How did we get here with this? We'll start off with the, the perspective of the modern sexologists who are driving this porn is good philosophy in the professional world, or it's not an addiction. Where does this come from? It really comes and starts with Alfred Kinsey in his book in 1948, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and his follow-up book in 1953, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. These books completely changed the academic landscape. And Kinsey and his co-workers went on to establish CECAS, the Institute for the Advanced Study of Sexual Health in San Francisco, from which came uh, Mary Calderon and Planned Parenthood participated in these, ASEC, all of these sex organizations today spun out of these of Kinsey and his early collaborators and co-writers. So the Kinsey view of sex is what has been promulgated today. Kinsey basically taught that sex is unemotional. Nowhere in his writings did he describe the emotional aspects and connective aspects of human sexuality. It was all about sexual release. That is the purpose of sex. Anywhere, anyhow, anytime with anyone. Release is the goal. Uh, and in the book, and I'm just going to refer to this so you'll understand, remember, the Kinsey Institute today of Indiana University is still considered by many to be the academic authority on sexuality. For instance, the SPAN lab paper at UCLA I referred to, uh, Nikki Prouse, who runs that lab, trained at the Kinsey Institute. So it's important to understand who these people are and what they're saying. Now, the reason I, I'm just going to go into this briefly, this is dark stuff, but we need to understand it. This is what's changing our culture. In sexual behavior in the human male, uh, this there's this table. Kinsey talks about child sexuality. So what they did is they studied child sexuality. Now, let's think about that for a minute. So this is a table. It's in Kinsey's book. 
the Kinsey Institute still publishes this book today as valid science. Today. What's, what does this table describe? It describes multiple orgasms in pre-adolescent males. Notice, from five months over to 14 years, this is how long the orgasm took, number of orgasms. Some of the children, it said, writhed in pleasure so much they screamed and cried and had to be held down. Now, think about that for a minute. This is Kenzie and his co-workers writing this in a science book that is still considered the Bible for academic sexologists today. So how did they do that? They timed these children with stopwatches in the Kinsey book. And so the question was asked, one of Kinsey's co-authors, Gephardt, who later became president of the Kinsey Institute, Dr. Gephardt, do pedophiles normally go around with stopwatches? And he said, well, they do if we tell them we're interested in it. So this is direct collaboration. Kenzie and his co-workers coerced and, well, cooperated with and collaborated with people like Belusik, the, the Nazi uh, pedophile, and Rex King, the American pedophile. And they collaborated with them and taught them how to time their abuse. And Kenzie wrote to them and said, be careful. He didn't turn them in. He told them to keep doing it and to keep reporting back. So understand the Kinsey Institute and what they do. This is where modern sexology is being driven. Um, another uh, co-worker, Walter Pomeroy, who later directed and started the Institute for the Advancement of Sexual Health, Pomeroy taught that sex with animals was good, uh, particularly boys, and that in the bottom one, that incest is wonderful for fathers and daughters. Now, remember, this person has had more impact on academic sexology than just about anyone. He was also on the board of Hustler magazine for a while as well. So this collaboration between the porn industry and modern academic sexology is very strong. Well, we see that with the SPAN lab, for instance, at UCLA. They actually, this has been taken down, but Nicole Prowse and the SPAN lab actually recommended that that people in California turn their therapists in for treating them for sexual addiction because it doesn't exist. It's not in the DSM. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The DSM is very flawed. Many are calling for, um, for, for people to quit using it just because it's, it's, uh, it has significant problems. And we'll talk about that later. So if, if we look at, for instance, AISHA, which was uh, the Institute Advanced Study of Sexual Health, and ASEC and all of these uh, different sexual organizations which drive modern sexual accrediting for sexual counseling. It was Pomeroy, it was uh, Calderwood, it was Paul Geppert, all Kinsey co-authors that drove what is now modern sexology. So we have to understand where we came from. What they do, you notice the SAR. SAR is the Sexual Attitude Readjustment Seminar. And an SAR is basically um, where a person, that, for instance, to be certified by ASEC, a person, the, the therapist has to watch, it's usually 10 to 12 hours of hardcore sexuality on multiple screens. It's to readjust their attitude towards sexuality. And it does that. And so, in other words, hardcore porn. I recently taught in a, in a university, gave a, a lecture, and one of the, um, 
after I t gave this talk, one of the heads of the department came up and told me his horrible experience that he had when he had an SER. I said, I didn't even know what that what it was, but we showed up and wham. And he said, I've been struggling with that ever since, with what it did. One person who underwent an SAR, George Leonard, uh, said, I struggled to force the acts I was watching into their proper boxes. Now I couldn't remember which was which. Wasn't I supposed to make these discriminations? I searched for clues. There were none. I began to feel uncomfortable. I realized that to avoid vertigo and nausea, I would have to give up the attempt to discriminate and simply surrender to the experience. He basically said there were 17 screens of sexual intercourse of different kinds between different types uh, of people. He said the differences for which lives have been ruined were not only trivial but invisible. By the end, nothing was shocking, but nothing was sacred either. But as I drove home, I began to get a slightly uneasy feeling. It was almost as if I'd been conned. By my own conditioned response of taking the most liberated position, whatever my deeper feelings, love had not been mentioned a single time during the entire weekend. And in Kinsey's work, in his books, go read them, if, if you dare. And in those books, you won't find love, you won't find connection, you won't find emotion. Pornography is, we know now, an emotional solvent. It dissolves emotional relationships and prevents others from forming. And it is, regardless of what some, some sexologists say, a biological addiction in the sense of a neuroplastic addiction. Now, let's go on and talk about connection first, then we'll get into addiction. Jennifer Robach Morris, I've presented with her in several programs. She's a fabulous uh, person who, um, who works with marriage as an institution. And this woman actually contacted her and it was posted on the site. It kind of speaks for itself. Sex was like a pleasant massage, healthy physical activity, eager to try. What I can say is about my past sexual partners that we never really met. In addition to all the sexual revolution lies I'd been fed, my mind was clouded by my unmet needs. I simply blanked out any indication that my partner couldn't give me what I wanted. I had no idea what was going on for him. I often think of all these men who knew, knew me without knowing me, and I use it as an opportunity to pray for them. Let my brothers in brokenness remember me as a notch they can boast about. Maybe, someday, they will repent and change paths like I have done. That day, we will really meet for the first time. In the meantime, I want to share my story with other people whose experience doesn't fit the sexual liberation narrative. Going back to that connection that Kinsey ignores, another woman who was a pornographic performer, a female, uh, said, I got, it got to the point where I considered having sexual relations the way most people consider getting a hamburger. But when you try to give it up, that's when you realize how addictive it is, both for consumers and performers. It's a class A drug and it's hard coming off of it. Let's talk about that. When Kinsey published his book in 1948, he just thought it was a release. The, uh, the goal was to release the sexual tension however you can as quickly as possible. He didn't know much about neuroattachment peptides at that time. And when I went to medical school and we studied oxytocin and vasopressin, these powerful brain hormones, what we knew at that time was that oxytocin and vasopressin were produced by the hypothalamus and they were important in physiologic sexual functioning. Oxytocin uh, causes breast milk to come down for lactation. During sexual orgasm, it causes uterine contractions. Vasopressin and oxytocin are important in male erection and ejacula ejaculation. They're physiologically important in our physical bodies functioning sexually. Even when I was in medical school in the 80s, we had no idea 
that they were important in emotion. And since then, with Larry Young's initial work on prairie voles and now the human work that's been done, we know these neuroattachment peptides are powerful binding agents emotionally. And they cause us to bind to the object of our sexuality. So in these intimate human experiences that cause us to bond to offspring and to produce more, they also cause us to bond together so we can raise those offspring. And this is biological. This is not religious. Although that's another talk. We're not going to get into that one today. Tom Wolfe, author of Bonfire the Vanities, said he caught this in attachment neuropeptide conundrum when he said, in the year 2000, the era of hooking up, first base meant deep kissing, groping, and fondling. Second base meant oral sex. Third base meant going all the way. And home plate meant learning each other's names. Getting to home plate was relatively rare, however. Sadly, this is true. It's true today on America's college campuses. We found with, neuro, with oxytocin and vasopressin that literally, particularly with the game Prisoner's Dilemma, when human subjects were playing this game and oxytocin was administered intranasally, intranasally they bonded to the computer. And particularly women would literally start treating the computer as a person. So oxit think about that for a minute. Think about pornography on a computer and bonding with masturbation. Interestingly, in Mark Regnerus's book, Premarital Sex in America, fa fa fascinating book, he quoted Brody and Kruger's paper. Masturbation doesn't really cut it as replacement to intercourse either. It relieves pent-up tension, of course, but it's hardly the same sense of emotional connection as paired intercourse. This is not hookup intercourse. This is bonded intercourse with a bonded partner, a marriage partner. There, there's a physiologic reason for that, too. Research into orgasms notes that prolactin, a hormone that serves to diminish arousal and thus provide sexual satiety, is related following, released following intercourse at a rate five times that following masturbation. Thus, intercourse is more satisfying than masturbation, something most adults already know but can't quite explain. Wendy Maltz, who went through and used pornography as a therapist in her work uh, and went through an SAR, uh, initially thought pornography was liberating. And she changed her mind and said later, I'm amazed that what I once saw as a liberating experience, sexual experience and therapeutic option for improving sex with an intimate partner has evolved into something that can easily hijack and harm people's sexuality. One of the biggest issues is the concept of mirror systems. Years ago, researchers doing monkey research actually had one monkey eating a peanut, peanuts, a whole bowl of them, and the other monkey was watching the monkey eating the peanuts. They had probes in both monkeys' brains in the same area, and they found the peanut cells, if you will. It fired when the monkey ate the peanut. It was literally one of the reward cells. That's, and the other monkey that was eating the peanut had this cell firing. It's the, that peanut tastes good cell, okay? So the other monkey, though, they found out had the same cell firing as he was watching the monkey eat the peanut as if he was eating the peanut. He was projecting himself into that monkey. It's called, and they named this mirror cells. Well, we have mirror systems in the human brain. And interestingly, in France, Maras and his co-authors did a study using pornography, and they found that individuals watching pornography are their mirror systems light up and are extremely active. And they summarize, we suggest that the mirror system, mirror neuron system,
prompts the observers, those watching pornography, to resonate with the motivational state of other individuals appearing in visual depictions of sexual interactions. Think about that for a minute. In other words, in watching the pornography, it transports the individual into the film emotionally, and there's not much emotion. What emotion is there? Bill Margold, one of the most famous male pornographers out there, described his emotion and those of other males. He said, I'd really like to show what I believe the men want to see, violence against women. I firmly believe we serve a purpose in showing that. The most violent we can get is, um, uh, describes a common sexual act. I've edited this. Men get off on that because they get even with the women they can't have. We try to inundate the world with, and he describes this graphic sexual act. His purpose is <clears throat> to do that, to demean women. That's what he wants to do. Now, 14-year-old Johnny, 10-year-old, is watching Bill teach them what sex is. And now sexuality is pornography to many young males. Naomi Wolf, the feminist, once said that today real women are just bad porn to these young men. Shelley Lubin, a pornography actress who now fights pornography, wonderful person, um, said, the real truth is we porn actresses want to end the shame and trauma of our lives. We can't do it alone. We need you men to fight for our freedom and give us back our honor. We need you to hold us in your strong arms while we sob tears over our deep wounds and begin to heal. We want you to throw out our movies and help piece together the shattered fragments of our lives. We need you to pray for us so God will hear and repair our ruined lives. So don't believe a lie anymore. Porn is nothing more than fake sex and lies on videotape. Trust me, I know. Anna Bridges and her co-authors published a study in aggression and sexual behavior and they found, uh, in uh, Violence Against Women, and they found that 90% of porn scenes can contain aggression towards women. Of the top 250 porn titles, what the porn proponents will say is, well, yeah, there's aggressive, violent porn out there, but mainly the usual porn doesn't have that. That is not true. They looked at this in this peer-reviewed paper um, and found that 90% of the scenes did show hair-pulling, name-grabbing, slapping, hitting, and name-calling. And these are demeaning names. And so that women are basically misogynistically being treated like pieces of meat. So what porn says is that men are brainless animals and women are pieces of meat. That is the message of porn. And this paper uh, described that um, specifically. Now, what the, you remember the statement earlier where he said, David Lay said that, well, porn, if you watch porn, then people, that's why rape's going down, because then people don't have to rape. They can just watch the porn. They don't have to go out and abuse children, because they can just watch the, what, what is now legal, by the way, and that is um, um, virtual child porn that's cartoon, okay? The Supreme Court said that's okay as long as there's no real kids. So you can watch that if you're a child pornographer or, or addicted to child pornography, and then you, don't, you won't want to go out and harm children. You'll be satisfied. It's like saying, you know, Mayor Bloomberg should have used that in New York, right? It's like he's trying to get the kids to stop drinking the supersized drinks. So they, should have, they shouldn't have made all the commercials that said, you know, Big Macs, because then the kids would just watch the commercials and not go out and eat them, right? <laughs> Think about that. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. But that's what they say. I mean, it's nuts. I mean, it, all, the whole field of advertising. What about the Super Bowl? They have those Ford commercials. It's like, gosh, people are just going to watch the cars and they won't go buy your cars. 
It's really amazing, but they do say that. This paper was just published by Corey Young in the Iowa Law Review, and he basically found that there's been a great cover-up, and that, yeah, instead of experiencing a widely reported great decline in rape, America's in, the, America's in the midst of a hidden rape crisis. Rape rates have skyrocketed. They've been markedly underreported because police departments are desperate to report lower crime rates. And so there is a calculated underreporting. And it's, it's, you can read the paper. It's pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. Now let's change gears and talk about addiction. Let's talk about, is this a biological change? You remember, and this goes way back, but um, when Don Henley and, and um, Fry and the other Eagles, they were Midwest boys, and they drove to L.A. to start the Eagles. And they both are pretty, they're all pretty honest about, they got into the L.A. lifestyle. They had trouble with drugs and, and, uh, and, and a lot of things. And, and looking back as older men, they talk about some of those struggles. But the song Hotel California, they said, really described their odyssey. When they drove into L.A. to conquer L.A. and become the Eagles, it was night. And that's why this is kind of a nighttime shot of L.A. They saw the lights. And so when they wrote the song Hotel California, if you hear if you, the, the very haunting lyrics, talk about this guy driving on a road. He sees a light. It's this hotel. And that's the metaphor for L.A., actually, from their group forming. They go up to the door. There's a woman at the door. She beckons him in. He says, this could be heaven or this could be hell. But he goes in, and it's a very metaphorical song. At one point, they're in a room. They're eating a feast of some kind. They stab it, he says, with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. They can't find satisfaction with what it is they're trying to consume, drugs, sex. And then the last line is very haunting for addiction. Last thing I remember the protagonist says in the song I was running for the door. I had to get back to the place where I was before, before the addiction, before this change. Relax, said the nightman. We are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Without recovery, it's true. There is no leaving addiction. With recovery, it's not true. This word addic addiction that's so divisive for many people we first see it in Frith, in Antithesis, 1529. It's Latin. It means assigned by decree, made over, bound, devoted. Does that not describe those who struggle with addiction? As it grabs us, our families, we become bound and devoted to a destructive process. Addiction has been defined by other behavioralists as the continued use of mood-altering, addicting substances or behaviors, such as gambling, compulsive sexual behaviors, despite adverse consequences. And based on new neuroscience, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM, in 2011 redefined addiction as being a chronic disease, they use the disease word, of the brain affecting three systems, reward, motivation, and memory. Reward. What was, and let's take sexuality since we're talking about that. So what was a sexual reward? For instance, let's, let's just use this for an example. Normal marital relations with a spouse, suddenly it's changed. That's not the reward anymore. It's this super normal stimulus, which I'll talk about in a minute. This new reward. Motivation. They're, now they're not motivated to pursue the first reward. There's this new reward. And third, memory. The memory of how bad they feel when they do pursue it 
is gone when they want to pursue it again. Then they feel guilty, but the guilt fades when it comes time to consume again. So reward, motivation, and memory. The memory of what will happen is skewed. But second, Asam said that because we, our understanding of how the brain processes reward has changed, that we now know that, sex, that addiction of all kinds incorporates not only addictions to substances such as cocaine and heroin, but also to behaviors such as to food, sex, and gambling. Eric Nessler, one of the top neuro addiction scientists in the world at Mount Sinai, New York, wrote a paper in 2005 in Nature Neuroscience called, Is There a Common Molecular Pathway for Addiction? In other words, do all addictions, whether they're to drugs or behaviors, converge on the same pathways in the brain? And in the, that paper, he drew this slide. On the left is a dopamine-producing cell. Dopamine is the I want it chemical of our brain. And there you see an NCA cell. That's the nucleus accumbens cell in the pleasure center. It's the pleasure cell of our brain, the pleasure center. It's the reward center cell. And that VTA makes dopamine and sends it through brain wires over to the other cell. In addiction, these cells physically change. And they, the dopamine-producing cell shrinks. It's the brain saying, you know, dopamine is great. Pleasure is great. But look, you're killing me. I've got to do other things in life. So what the brain does is it shrinks that dopamine system. It makes the dopamine cells get smaller. There's less dopamine available. The dopamine receptors on the other side of the nucleus accumbens cells are downgraded. There's fewer of them. So now in addiction, a state of brain addiction, the individual lives with a dopamine dearth, a state of dopamine craving. And that's why frequently people in trying to overcome addiction will switch it to different addictions until they can actually rewire that brain back to a more normal state. What are these addiction chemicals? Well, if you notice on the left is a brain cell, a wire. On the right is a wire with a lot more little wires sprouting off of it. And years ago, looking at cocaine, we found that this is called neuroplasticity, or changing in brain cells with learning. And years ago, we found that cocaine does this, and then all the other drugs of abuse do this. And what it is, it's the brain growing new brain wires to talk to other brain cells that connect to these substance abuse behaviors. It's the brain saying, whoa, that was fun. I don't want to forget that. And fun in the brain sense means it feels good because it's a survival mechanism. Well, what happens is this was with cocaine and then it was with salt, severe salt craving. Salt is very important. If we don't have salt, we die, particularly animal models that don't eat meat are very vulnerable to salt depletion. And we found that with severe salt craving, when you repleted it, they grew wires just like cocaine, called dendritic arborization. That's the name of this form of neuroplasticity. So, and then in 2013, looking at an, a rodent model for sexuality, they found the same thing with intercourse, with rodents. It grew sprouts just like cocaine. In other words, it's that powerful a stimulus as to invoke a neuroplastic response, just like the others. And so what happens is these DNA transcripts form literally engines, molecular engines of desire. There are literally DNA strands that when we crave something, they say, okay, DNA, turn on these particular DNA transcripts to make the craving chemicals of the brain. So we'll go for that, we'll want it. I was honored to be a member of this team that wrote a paper in the National Academy of Science, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2011 uh, in, co in connection with Melbourne Uni uh, University of Melbourne and Duke University. What we looked at 
was salt craving, and we found that the same gene sets that are awakened in the DNA to make an animal crave salt are the same gene sets that cause an animal to crave heroin and cocaine. That had never been shown. And so our paper, we summarized that what happens is addiction usurps, steals these normal brain transcripts for desire and tells the brain that you're going to die if you don't use that. If you don't use that drug, if you don't get that salt, you're going to die. True with the salt, not true with the drug, but the brain is tricked. National Geographic wrote an article about our paper, and in the, paper, in the article about our paper said that drugs hijack this instinctive need. And that's what happens with sexuality. Sexual addiction hijacks what is actually a wonderful and beneficial and necessary part of our lives. This, uh, this is a reference, I put it in here so you can look it at later. This is a paper I published in Socioaffective Neuroscience where I talk about how pornography is a supernormal stimulus and it's considered in the context of this brain changing function. I'm not going to go into this a lot. You can look up this up later. You can call, I'll talk to you about it. Delta Fos B is a brain switch. Nestler studied it. It basically was found years ago with cocaine, over 15 years ago, with cocaine and then other drugs. It basically went up, and in animals that were addicted, the Delta Fos B didn't go away. It stayed high, and it was considered likely an addiction marker and facilitator. It was like a switch that turned on and kept addiction turned on. It's basically intimately tied to the dopamine systems of the brain that we talked about earlier. Mark Lewis, in talking about these systems, said, and he was addicted to just about every drug you could imagine, and then got, gained recovery and became a neuroscientist, and describes what the high feels like and what's happening in your brain. It's a New York Times bestseller, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, a neuroscientist examines his former life on drugs. Mark Lewis said, good old dopamine, the chemical mover that gets us to chase after whatever it is we want, whatever spells relief. For starving animals, dopamine makes the brain a vehicle for seeking food. For addicts, it sends the brain hunting for drugs. In fact, dopamine-powered desperation can change the brain forever because its message of intense wanting narrows the field of synaptic change, focusing it like a powerful microscope on one particular reward whether in the service of food or heroin, love, we could say sex here, or gambling, dopamine forms a rut, a line of footprints in the neural flesh, and those footprints harden and become indelible, beating an intractable path to a highly specialized and limited pot of gold. Let's talk about footprints. Does the brain change with learning? It does, and this is pretty remarkable. But 20 years ago, researchers looked at violin players. They scanned their brains, and they found that the part of the, the brain that controls the left hand got bigger the more they played the violin, and the earlier they started, the bigger it got. Wow, learning actually sculpts your brain. It changes brain function. And, and some of these researchers even said, if you look at the second one, cortical, which is brain asymmetries, are the result of use-dependent plasticity as a specific consequence of musical practice. This is not correlation. This is causation. It changes the brain. And these studies weren't harmful, so they could do uh, prospective studies. They could take people and follow them and scan them as they did the activity, and then they could compare them with others who didn't and say, yeah, it's, it's not correlation only. 
And Drakowski then looked at different things. For instance, they looked at studying and took medical students that studied for three-month periods, scanned their brains before and after, and the parietal temporal lobes got bigger with studying. They literally enlarged. So there's a studying footprint. The music footprint I've talked about, Albert Einstein loved Mozart, and he loved mathematics. It's likely his musical ability was tied to this. He had this music footprint. Jugglers with the hippocampus that juggle extensively have these motor areas that get bigger. It's a footprint for juggling. And addiction does as well. Now with addiction, they're not prospective. You can't take two groups of kids and say, okay, here's some heroin. Now you group of kids use the heroin, and you don't. It's kind of hard to get that through the IRBs. But what we do know is that if we look at individuals that are addicted, and we compare them with individuals that are not addicted, there's a correlation. And the correlation is that every addictive study so far, whether cocaine, meth, opioids, obesity, sexuality, internet addiction, and specifically this recent study by Kuhn this year in JAMA Psychiatry, pornography addiction out of Cambridge University shows, yes, shrinkage of the gray matter. I internet addiction showed this addiction footprint as well, that it's a consequence of using these facilities. It causes gray matter change in the brain. It's not new neurons or it's not shrinking neurons, it's change in the connectivity. It's all these changing connections. Some go away, some form. Now, this study by Kuhn in JAMA Psychiatry, which published this, uh, this year, showed that yes, that reward area, the striatum by the nucleus accumbens, is shrunken with pornography users. And the frontal connectivity fibers are decreased. That ability to break the brain or to judge is decreased in people that are addicted to pornography. And it correlated with the more hours per week they watch the pornography, the more they change the brain. So it should be done, right? We've proven now that pornography is addictive, it changes the brain. Well, if we understand those previous studies that show that every other learning activity does physically change your brain, and we have that perspective, then we can interpret this in that light. But if we look at this study alone, what do you think the sexologist would say? They try to take this study alone, and they'll say, no, 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 it's just correlation. And so the possibilities are that, and this is what the, they said, of course, the authors had to say, look, this is just a correlative study. We didn't follow them longitudinally. We can't addict people purposefully and then scan them before and after. So it's just correlation. But they said, but it could reflect this change in neuroplasticity as a consequence of intense stimulation of the reward system together with the top-down modulation of prefrontal cortical areas, i.e. addiction brain addiction. Or it could just be a precondition where some people are just born with shrunken brains and doomed to watch porn. <laughs> now, if we go back and look at juggling and medical student studying and every other activity, so far there's a footprint for everything. But they're going to try to tell us, no, porn's the one thing that can't change your brain. It doesn't imprint you that much. It's not that powerful. Right. So, I mean, and then if we look at the neuroplasticity side, I mean, neither one is good. Either one, it's not good. Either pre-shrunken or you're shrinking. Neither one's good. But we do know that, and in my opinion, based on the prospective study from all the other learning data, it's very clear that, yes, it is number one. It, could, it does change of reflect. At least some of it, and probably most of it, is a change in neuroplasticity. 
So Voon's paper came out in, um, later in, in plus one out of Cambridge University in England. She looked at a different thing. She looked at functional MRI. In other words, incentive sensitization. A cocaine addict, when they're really sensitized, you can show them a cocaine cue and the reward area goes crazy with an overshoot. Wow, I really want that line of cocaine. And that's called incentive sensitization. It's one of the hallmarks of addiction. Well, Voon just published this study in Plus One out of Cambridge University. I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Valerie Voon uh, at Karn's conference in February. Got to meet her and have lunch. And, and um, this is basically a very clear study showing a, an addiction template, an addiction module for incentive sensitization. But more important, as important, they also found a, the classic wanting-liking split. Individuals addicted to alcohol, cocaine, get to where they, don't even, they, they crave it, but they don't even like it. It's called a wanting-liking split. And for the first time, they found that pornography looked just like drug addiction in that way. People eventually got to where they, didn't, they craved it, but they didn't even like it anymore. So in looking at Voon's studies, she summarized how does this relate to drug addiction? Are there comparisons then with drug addiction and porn? And this is what Voon and her co-authors said. The dissociation between desire or wanting and liking is consistent with theories of incentive motivation underlying compulsive sexual behavior as in drug addictions. Secondly, neural differences in the processing of sex cues, reactivity, were identified in compulsive sexual behavior subjects in regions previously implicated in drug cue reactivity studies. So some tried to say, well, yeah, but it's correlative, and the sexologist tried to downplay it. And one, core, one prominent therapist that's a pro-anti-addiction therapist said, well, look, I know one of the, the co-authors, and what, he, what she really meant was it wasn't really a wanting-liking split. He was trying to explain it down on one of the uh, blog sites. Well, he didn't know we knew Valerie, and she emailed us and said, no, I meant wanting-liking split. I've got another paper coming out in Plus One. That's what she told us privately in our group, and this paper just came out last month. Second paper showing, yes, our findings suggest enhanced attentional bias to explicit cues possibly related to early orienting attentional response. In other words, incentive sensitization, fMRI overcuing, an addiction hallmark with porn. This finding dovetails with our recent, that first paper that I talked about, observation that sexually explicit videos were associated with greater activity in neural networks similar to that observed in drug Q-reactivity studies. Greater desire or wanting rather than liking was further associated with activity in this neural network. These studies together provide support for an incentive motivation theory of addiction underlying the aberrant response towards sexual cues and compulsive sexual behavior. Incentive motivation theory of addiction. So we have uh, some of the top molecular scientists, behavioral scientists, behavioral cross-scientists, all using the word addiction. And this is a specific porn study. Cowan Malinka, in talking about the brain changes that happen, said addiction of all kinds, in terms of how it changes brain cells, represents a pathological yet powerful form of learning and memory. Pornography is a powerful substrate. As the individual is frantically searching and clicking, for just the right video. And that's an exercise in neuronal plasticity as they do so. It also damages working memory. 
And people that are severely addicted to pornography note that their concentration is not as good, their ability to process, to work. Adolescents are much more vulnerable than adults. They, Deltafos B is elaborated on a much more robust basis in adolescents than in adults. They're much more prone to addict. Children are, adult, particularly adolescents and young adults. And the frontal connectivity areas are not fully developed until the mid-20s to late 20s. So you have this perfect storm combination in adolescents of a, a very prone reward system that elaborates Delta FOSB, this addiction marker, and drives them towards overconsuming with a break of the brain, this frontal area, this judgment area that's not formed. You have an engine driving with a break that's not quite there yet. You can see the vulnerability with that. Now, briefly, Nicholas Tinbergen talked about the concept of a supernormal stimulus. He was a biologist that won the Nobel Prize in the 70s. What he did is he took these bird eggs and he painted these plaster eggs bigger and brighter than normal eggs. And he found that the birds would roost on the plaster eggs and if the nest with their own eggs next to it, they would ignore them. They went for this stimulus that was above what they encountered in nature. Then he did a very pertinent experience to our subject. He took these butterflies and it turns out in this species the males would mate with the females by being attracted to their wings, shape, color, and size. And he made bigger and brighter wings out of cardboard. And the male butterflies selectively tried to mount and mate with the paper female butterflies and ignored the real females that were available to them. Think about that for a minute in the context of what we're talking about. Now, let's switch gears. We've got 10 minutes. Recovery. Ernest Hemingway said, the world breaks everyone, and then afterwards many are stronger in the broken places. And, you know, that is true, but only if we get it. <laughs> right? I mean, if we don't get it, if we're going along oblivious to the truth, then we can't really help ourselves. We can't protect ourselves from the trauma. So just as addiction is a neuroplastic process, so is recovery. Shakespeare nailed it. He said, refrain tonight, and that shall lend a hand of easiness to the next abstinence, the next more easy, for use almost can change the stamp of nature. Addiction is a stamp, but so is recovery. It's a neuroplastic stamp. Mindfulness therapy has been shown to enlarge the brain again. Mark Haney said, since pornography can be an addiction, these just-say-no types of approaches are likely to only create more frustration. The intervention must treat it as a real addiction, just like a substance addiction. And several studies have shown atrophy with meth, for instance, has reversed with up to a year and a half of recovery. And as I said, mindfulness therapy causing enlargement and healing of these atrophied areas. Victor Klein said four things he found were present in most individuals who'd attained strong recovery from sexual addiction. The individual personally motivated to be free of the addiction and do whatever it takes. Second, safe environment. Third, 12-step support. Fourth, counselor therapist with experience treating addiction. We've heard from 12-step. We've heard from therapists. Okay, what about addiction? What's different? So if a person's in recovery for many years, that person, Karn said, they don't lust anymore. They're some of the, the, the most um, 
focused people that we know, what's the difference then? Why don't they say recovered? It's because in addiction, it's like this. This is the Wicogwag Trail, uh, or a representation of it. It's not the real trail. It ran along this island called Mondash Houghton Island, and then the Europeans came. They built New Amsterdam, then New York, but this road, this path was paved. It was called the Broad Path or the Broadway, and eventually they just paved it out. And that's why it's cattywampus to all the other streets in New York. It was the first trail that was there. So recovery would mean tearing out the cement and repaving the trail. But a person that's had an addiction will remember, there's a part of the woods that has a trail. I'm going to avoid that because I know there's, there's construction crews and heavy equipment ready to repave that in an instant. And I'm just going to avoid that area of the woods. And that's recovery. It's being conscious of it. I'll let you read this later. This is Pat Carnes talking about growth stage, which happens after two to three years of recovery from sexual addiction. He says, by then, people look back with disbelief of what they've done. There's no longer false starts. There's a consciousness of sobriety, of richer relationships. That's that human connection and emotion. They have a greater perception, compassion, and presence. And they serve, not only do they serve as models for other recovering people who follow them, but they're literally helping our whole society heal. Now, Jimmy Stewart, going back to 12-step, remember in It's a Wonderful Life, remember his, it, it represents step one. Remember him sitting there in Martini's bar? Everyone see the movie? He's in Martini's bar, he's crying, he prays that prayer, dear God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope, show me the way, God. He was sobbing. You remember the scene? Frank Copper, the director after, said, Jimmy, that was amazing. Here, I, I didn't get a good angle. Let's shoot it again. Jimmy stood up, wiped his eyes, and walked out. That was their only shot. It was his first movie back from the war after he served as a bomber pilot. He'd lost all these friends. He was sitting there, and he really started praying and thinking about all his friends, and it was real. It was his step one. And remember, though, he went to kill himself, but he didn't. Why? Clarence, remember? Clarence saved him, the angel. He jumped in and well, Jimmy could, you know, George Bailey couldn't kill himself. He had to save Clarence. And that's step 12. Is as we reach out to help others, we save ourselves. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, and he doesn't mean divorcing humans. He means divorcing ourselves from hell. said, I do not think that all who choose wrong roads in an addiction context who are addicted perish. But their rescue consists of being put back on the right road. A wrong sum can be put right but only by going back to you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Evil or addiction can be undone, but it cannot develop into good on its own. Time does not heal it without appropriate recovery. The spell must be unwound bit by bit with backward mutters of dissevering power or else not. It is still either or. That 12-step process, that therapy cognitive process, of going back till we find the error and working it afresh from that point and unwinding that spell is powerful. Years ago, um, in closing, a friend of mine came to my office. He was a fellow physician. They had just gotten a new CAT scanner. He was the guinea pig. They was, we need to see if this thing works. I'll volunteer. He jumped on it. Never do that. <laughs> actually, it was good he did. So he comes to me and he has this scan. This is actually a scan that looks like it. Notice that little arrow thing. That's a little called a colloid cyst. It's a benign tumor, but it's right blocking those black areas. And those are called ventricles. And it blocks critical areas in the brain. It can cause sudden death. 
So here's my doctor friend sitting in the office. He was a UT fan. UT was playing in the Final Four in New Orleans like two days, and he had tickets to go the next morning. And he was looking at this thing, and he's going right off the bat, please tell me I can still go see the Final Four. <laughs> and I said, look, do you want to live? And I said, this can cause sudden death. So instead of him going there, I was, next day I was operating on my friend. I did what's called an inter interhemispheric approach. I went down the middle, split the two halves of the brain, and went down right between there, and we teased this off. I teased this off of the brain. Now, this was in, a, in the center of the brain in a critical area. The fornices, which control memory. You could see the striatum, which is the pleasure area we've been talking about. Just below it was the hypothalamus, these emotional areas. I could see his emotion. I'm looking, going, and I knew him. That's what made this one a little different. It was someone that I knew. And I sat there and I thought, wow, his emotions, his fears, his loves, him, whatever he is, is there. And I thought, you know, whatever makes us human, this, this essence of humanity, of, of, of the divine, if you believe, as I do, that there's that as well, then it's in these, this, these intimate and beautiful neural structures. Somewhere, the interface of what he is, of his soul, his persona, is interfacing with the physical world through these delicate and beautiful neural structures. And I had an epiphany a little bit about who he was and who I am and who you are. And we're really about that, aren't we? We're about emotion, not just sensation. That's the bottom line. We're about reaching out and helping each other. Now, uh, a few years ago, um, there was a tragic accident in Iowa, in the river, in um, Des Moines, Iowa. And Patricia Neely, Ralph Neely and her husband Alan were in a boat, and the engine quit working. And they went over this fall, and Alan fell tragically into a whirlpool and died. And Patricia had a lifeboat. There was only one lifeboat in the boat, and as the boat went over, Alan gave his life jacket to his wife. And of course, he perished. But she was stuck in this vortex. They got crews. They tried to raise the cranes to save her. They had the EMS people. They could not get her. She was going to go down. And Mary Chind, who won the Pulitzer Prize for this picture, saw it as it happened and took this picture. Jason Oglesby was a construction worker. He wasn't a, a hero. He wasn't military. He wasn't a rescue guy. He was a construction worker. They were building something. But they had a crane. And he said, hook me up to the crane. And he had them lower him in the crane into the water. And he reached down and pulled Patricia out of that water. And that's what we're about, isn't it? We're better than that. We're about love. We're about this. Let's do better. Let's reach out. Let's heal ourselves and others. Thank you. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.